Elizabeth, welcome to the Change Africa podcast. We are very happy to have you here. This is where we have conversations with the leaders that we believe are the helm of the African transformation. So Elizabeth is the CEO and head of school for the Global Village Project. And until recently, I actually worked with her in a very great organization that is also helping transform education in Africa, Junior Achievement Africa. Um, so before we go into all that you do, Elizabeth, there's something that I found out that is very intriguing for me. I want to start a conversation off with. I found out that you are an actual art lover. I mean, this is, you're like serious art lover. <laughs> I mean, I know that in the office, um, one time we were trying to solve some art and then all these problems that came with it. So I figured you might be interested in art, but I didn't know it was that deep. And then through the research for the podcast, I found out that you've been following people on LinkedIn. And in fact, your husband is actually an artist. So I wanted to start off the conversation with where this love of art <laughs> came from. Thank you for having me, Isaac. Um, I'm really, um, as you know, you're one of my favorite people. And I'm really excited that you asked me to be a part of this podcast and happy to, to have this conversation with you. Um, my love of art, I wish I knew where my lo love of art com comes from. I think it's God-given. Um, my mother was very much an art lover growing up and I don't know where her love of art came from. So I think it's partly informed by my mother's love of art, but definitely something that, you know, for me, it's a compulsion. And I, I think of art as essential to my life in the same way that water and air are essential to me, almost the same, you know, like it's, it's a source of life for me. Um, and, you know, I've collected art. Before I knew I was collecting art, I was collecting art. And from as far back as, you know, when I first started coming back to Africa, after I'd moved to the U.S., which was 1997, you know, I was always buying art that I'd see on the side of the road. It was carvings. It was, you know, right now it's mostly, my collection is mostly um, paintings, uh, contemporary African art uh, in the form of paintings. But I've, I've collected for as long as I can remember, and I now have probably probably a 100-piece-plus collection. <laughs> wow, um, okay. Yeah, no, it's it's quite big, and, and I don't have the wall space for it anymore. And, uh, you know, just moving into this. If you have room in your art collection, I would definitely want to have your art pieces. <laughs> you, you want to? <laughs> okay, give that good, to me. noted. <laughs> noted. I think that's also very important because now I am starting to think about what am I going to do with all this? My kids, you know, and, and my husband, of course, just indulge me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I budget for art in the same way that I budget to pay, pay bills. You know, it's just it's that strong. And um, <laughs> so I don't know where it comes from. But for me, it's it's an essential part of my life. But now it's become more intentional since I realized I was like, wow, I am an art collector. After the first time somebody called me that, I was like, no, I, I'm not a collector. I thought of collectors as rich people who, you know, buy things that cost lots of money. Um, and mine doesn't. I mean, I definitely have children to feed. <laughs> um, but it's it's definitely worth something now. And I think more than anything, now it's become a mission. Um, partly to collect, to preserve, to make sure that Africans develop and appreciate a love of art in the same way that it's done around the world um, and make the investment in artists, especially in living artists. 
um, but also it's become now more uh, a passion of promoting young African artists and African art is so much less valued than art from all over the world. And I think that that's wrong because a lot of uh, European and other art was inspired by African art. I mean, Picasso's drawings, you know, um, were inspired a lot by African art and that's documented. That's not something I'm just running my mouth about. So I, I just think that there's a lot of room in the world for us to elevate contemporary African art. And I'm playing my small part. I have a, an Instagram handle, one of those, you know, art appreciation handles. And I, I post African art. Um, yeah, I remember that. I think you said you had a, a t- secret Instagram secret. handle. It's not secret anymore. Yeah, if I'm right, one time have I actually found, found it? it. Yeah, I think so. It was so. private I for a while, so. but it's not anymore. It's, I'll tell it if people want to know. It's uh, at Bantu Kalisi. Um, and it's, okay. a, it's a great... Yeah, I definitely found it. I definitely found it. <laughs> I love how I think <laughs> I, I have that. secrets and it's busted. No, for a while it was private because yeah. I was just like, this is not something I should be investing my energy in. But now I've, I've become... Bantu Kalisi. Yeah. <laughs> Why that? It. Why that? So, yeah. Why that so, name, uh, Bantu Kalisi? One, one, well, yeah, one word. One. Why that? Um, I don't know. It's just a name. I mean, it's Instagram, right? You don't think things too seriously. <laughs> it was what I came up with in that moment. And it seemed to work, you know, well, obviously, I was a Game of, I was a Game of Thrones fan. And I'm a Bantu woman. And so, um, yeah. <laughs> Maybe you have a thing for cool names. <laughs> because you. one of the things that I found out that I'm going to ask you, um, I have a lot of questions to ask you, is that... Intrigued. Indira Avira. Mm-hmm. Is that something you wanted to just rhyme? You just wanted to rhyme names? <laughs> What's the thinking behind those two names? I think they are Thank beautiful you. names, I think so too. Those, so those are my my daughter's names. My daughters are 10 and 12. And Indira, Indy, just, I mean, it came out of, I have a very, real fascination with Eastern culture um, and always have, you know, I've, I've always I've joked in the past that in my former life or maybe my future life, I was Indian. Um, and my maiden <laughs> name, Elango, um, is, is a name that's very much found in India. And people reach out to me, Indian people reach out to me on LinkedIn all the time asking me where I got that name. I'm like, where did you get that name? You know, it came from Africa. <laughs> <laughs> and so after a while, you know, when we lived in, in Atlanta, which is where I live now, um, for a long time, we would receive um, invitations in the mail from the local Indian community because of our last name, they'd invite us to like Indian gatherings and things. I think somebody just looked in the directory or something and just assumed we're Indian. So, you know, after a while, it just became a running joke and then I embraced it. So people, I'd meet people, they'd be like, where'd you get that name? I'd be, oh, I'm Gujarati, which is the name, the where the part in India where, where the name is often found. So <laughs> anyway, so all this to say, Indira, you know, I used to follow, um, you know, I still follow politics. I follow women in leadership and Indira Gandhi. You know, whether, whatever you think of her politics and people obviously have different um, perspectives. But it was just, a, for me, it was a beautiful name. And I, I always knew growing up that I wanted to name my daughter that if I had one. So I did. And then Abira, um, which has a Middle Eastern um, origin, it was just a beautiful name that sort of went together. And so um, my daughter's an Indian actor. <laughs> and they are quite a pair and going to take over the world. So in any way in your thinking, did you think... <laughs> I want my children's names to rhyme. No, not necessarily. I think that was more something that my husband cared about. <laughs> okay, I didn't okay. So much care about. <laughs> I didn't so much care about it. Um, 
but no, it's so funny because they couldn't be more different than each other, right? So, <laughs> so the rhyming name is about as close a thing as they have in common besides sharing a, a set of parents, everything else. In every other way, they're completely different. And I love that about them. So currently you are the CEO of the Global Village Project and you left Junior Achievement, which is an organization that I think you put in a very higher pedestal than you came to meet it. I mean, I don't know what happened to the Wise Awards, which is an application that when I was there was being done. But, you know, there are all these awards that we won, but I guess it was time for you to leave and you decided to do that. So I want you to talk to us about this new project, the Global Village Project, and why you went into it. I mean, I read um, about that experience resonating with you in your personal high school um, journey of going to the U.S. when you were very young. And I want you to tell us about how special this project is and, and what motivated you to get into the Global Village Project. So Global Village Project is a school here in Atlanta where I live now um, that was founded 11 years ago for refugee girls who are coming into the U.S. into um, the community from different parts of the world. So there's just outside Atlanta, there's a city called Clarkston and Clarkston um, apparently has the largest population of refugees coming into the U.S. Um, and it's an amazing place. I mean, you literally turn every corner and you're in a different country because, you know, it's the Ethiopian coffee shop is over here and in, right around the, next to it is the Indian restaurant and right around next to it is the, you know, uh, Congolese grocery, just things like, like that. And it's an amazing, amazing place. Um, but Clarkston was taking in thousands of refugees each year. And, uh, you know, when young people would arrive, when kids would arrive in the U.S. with their families, they would get placed in the school system. Of course, they were placed by age. So you look at an 11-year-old and put them in the fifth grade or something like that. Um, with no consideration about what education uh, level, uh, uh, academic level they had attained. And so these kids were struggling. They were failing out of school. They were going to school. Most of them had never attended school before so you know 16 year old who had never been in a classroom you know or, or maybe had attended at the most you know three years of school what we were also finding was that there was a big difference or what the founders were finding was that there's a big difference between what the um, readiness level of school was between boys and girls because you know families in crisis families in conflict families in refugee situations often have to make very difficult decisions about family resources so the, the education of boys was typically prioritized so their brothers would have had some level of education. The girls would have nothing. Um, so they, the founders decided to start the school specifically for refugee girls. And in, in, at, at a global village project at our school, we place them based on their ability. Um, so we do an assessment before they come into the school. And then we you know, start them, most of them, just with basic literacy, um, English literacy, writing literacy. We have 20 new students at the school this year. And about five of them have never been in school before. And, you know, can you imagine trying to teach children ABCs, um, you know, in a pandemic, trying to teach them digital literacy at the same time because they've never interacted with computers, things like that. So it's a really exciting role. It's a very challenging job. Um, it's an amazing organization. I was so drawn to it when I left Junior Achievement in June of this year. I, I knew I was coming back to, well, I had a sense that I was coming back to Atlanta. I wasn't quite sure, but... Um, you know, through a, a number of circumstances that I call God alone, you know, it, it just so happened that this job came up and it was the best fit for me. I just, I wanted to do, as you know, I'm very passionate about girls 
in their education. And I really wanted to be in a position where I was working with girls um, and helping improve their, their education. And so um, this opportunity was perfect. And I'm just so thrilled to be at Global Village Project. What is some of the difference between the work that you did at Junior Achievement and the Global Village Project? I know in one of your write-ups, you talk about the difference in the staff. Junior Achievement was relatively small staff. Global Village Project is a bigger staff. But I mean, I want you to talk profoundly about the chasm that exists in the mission between both organizations. Yeah, I think you know there are a lot of similarities between this job and the job of junior achievement. I did at junior achievement. In many ways, I think of it as you know it's an extension of my career. It just it was an it was the logical next step in my career. And as I learn more about myself and the things that move me and motivate me, you know I've always chosen jobs that didn't feel like work, <laughs> whether intentionally or unintentionally. You know I my my one big criteria when I'm looking at a position is not. You know, is it visible? Is it prestigious? Does it pay well? You know, things like that. I'm always motivated by what is the greatest need that the world has in this moment and what and how does that overlap with my ability to produce, to provide that need? Um, and, you know, and so in many ways, I've always felt the jobs I've done, I was perfectly suited for and they were perfectly suited for me. So the commonalities with Junior Achievement is that it was they're both based in the education space. Um you know, empowerment of girls, which is something I've said I care about um, and continue to. Uh, but they're also, and I've never, I've never ran a school before. So the peculiarity of this one is that it's a nonprofit that runs a school. So it's two separate but intertwined organizations, and I'm, you know, get to lead both. I think the thing that drew me the most, um, you know, junior achievement. While I loved my job, there was a lot of travel. Uh, and I was gone a lot, you know, I was doing 10 to 12 trips a year, international trips. So I, it was very tasking and it was rewarding, but it was also very tasking. Um, so part of this is informed by where I am in my life and, you know, the needs of my children. You know, they need me to be home more as they grow into their teenage years. And I, you know, obviously want to be home as well because travel was was very difficult. Um but more than anything, it was the fact that, you know, a junior achievement, when I wanted or needed to be around the students, which was really the thing that motivated me the most about my job. You know, I usually had to get on a plane and go to another country and have a program experience with the students. And in Ghana, where we were, as you know, I didn't always have the opportunity to, to interact with students. So I wanted to be in a place where I was closer to the students, that I was interacting with them on a daily basis and that I could more tangibly be a part of their lives and they could be a part of mine. So so this was a perfect fit in that way because even though we're in a pandemic now, obviously, and we can't be on campus, one day we will be. And, you know, I just, I want the experience of standing at the door every morning and welcoming the students as they come through and getting hugs and having them come into my office and talk about their different challenges and things like that. So um, those were some of the things that really informed my decision to take this role. So on LinkedIn, you talked about this last girl that was brought, I think, as part of the current cohort, a refugee or something like that, a girl who was added to the people that you have right now. So can you talk about this girl that was added? So we've taken in two young girls in the last two, three weeks, uh, three young girls. Um, there's a set of twins who have just arrived in the U.S. a few months ago from... Tanzania. They were refugees in Tanzania. Their, origin, their family is originally from the Congo. Um, these girls are orphans. They're 11 years old and they were brought into, their country, into the country by their uncle. Um, 
So imagine, I mean, just hearing a story like that, if you hear nothing else about these girls, it's incredibly moving, you know, for 11-year-olds to have lost both parents, to have lived on a refugee camp for God knows how many years, well over a decade, most of their lives. Um, you know, we couldn't, it was just too compelling for us to turn our backs on. And so those were, that was one set that we took in. And then shortly after we took them in, um, another girl uh, came on our radar. She is originally from Myanmar. Her family have been living as refugees in Malaysia, and they also just got into the country. She has had some schooling. She's had some education, so she has some English. I was in campus last Friday, and I got to interact with three of them because we were doing their intake and orientation. And it's just amazing, you know, to be around these girls gives you a sense of perspective and of gratitude for your life and the things that we take for granted. Because just peace and security is so, and a sense of safety and a sense of belonging is so foundational to all of us and our ability to operate on a daily basis as human beings, our ability to succeed in the places where we are. Um, and for a lot of these girls, they haven't experienced it. So all of those experiences inform the way that we operate as a school. Um, you know, we're trauma-informed in our in our educational approach, which just really is a fancy way of saying that we really take into account that these children have been through very challenging experiences in their lives. And so our approach to teaching and to um, educating them is about restoring um, in every way that w the way that we possibly can, supporting them and giving them the, the ideal foundation to succeed. And that's, that's um, I mean, that's very compelling to me. And that was uh, one of the reasons why I am loving this job a few months in. So before this podcast, we were having a conversation about why people do things, you know, and I'm mm -hmm. very fascinated about that very phenomenon. I could say that you strike me as a kind person. Um, I think you're a kind person. Maybe you will not accept <laughs> that about yourself. You're no, I, th I think I am. I like to say that about myself, so I won't say no. I think I think I am. I try to be. And I want to know, you know, you're a very educated person. You could have done jobs that maybe have could have paid you a lot more. So why do you still do what you do now, you know, and not just go into mm -hmm. some capitalist establishment? Um, hmm. well, thank you, first of all, for saying that I'm kind. I, I agree with you. I, I try to be kind. <laughs> it's not always easy. Um, why do I do this? Um, I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier um, in my life. And I'm somebody who is very, very motivated by my conversations and relationships with God. So in all things that that drives me is where does God want me to be? And I think the reason why I've had a relatively easy and definitely very blessed life is because I have tried as much as possible to follow God's plan and God's command of me. So even if it's meant uprooting my family, you know, first of all, moving to the U.S. at age 16 to go get my education, then that's what I did. And then, you know, changing, moving between states in the U.S. for one reason or another, I just, I just kept putting one foot in front of the other and trusting God. Um, and I think that that's part of why I'm so intuitive as well is because my intuition is informed by conversations with my higher power telling me what to do and reassuring me at every step that I won't fall because he'll catch me. Um, so that gives me a great deal of confidence. Um, yeah, and so that was that was part of the reason why we moved to Ghana from the U.S. was I when I left my, that job that I was doing in, in Arkansas, 
I I didn't know what I was going to do next, but I remember very clearly God had said to me after 15 years at this organization, God said, it's time to go. And I said, but what am I go- where am I going? My husband wasn't working at the time, so it wasn't an easy decision. Um, but it, um, it, it was the right thing to do. And it happened in a way that could only have been informed and, and orchestrated by, by God, in my, in my opinion. Um, and same thing too, when I was leaving Junior Achievement, I mean, I was enjoying that job with all my heart. <laughs> I wasn't ready to leave. I didn't want to come back to the U.S. in the middle of a pandemic with two children in tow. You know, leaving like a thief in the night on a chartered flight was not my idea of a good time. Um, but I had faith and I knew that there was a purpose for which I was being transplanted. And so that's really where I draw. I wish I could say something, you know, deeper about <laughs> what motivates me. But that, that really is it. Yeah, no, that really is it. It's just trusting God, putting one foot in front of the other um, and, and trying to be purposeful and useful um, in the world. So geography has always just been for me a, a very abstract concept, which I can say even though I travel with a Cameroonian passport, which is one of the most difficult passports in the world to travel with. Um, but somehow I get to where I need to be. I say the things that I need to say and I do the things that need to be done. And then I, keep I think I relate to that a lot. Um, when I take actions, they are some of the most ambitious. Um, yet, reasonably, looking at my environment, my resources, altogether I should not be able to do that, right? But I keep on doing that, knowing that they would come to fruition. Um, it's not that it's going to happen, yeah. you know, you're sure of it. But you're just moved by the purpose um, of having to do something. Because in that moment, you know it's the right thing to do. Yeah. And then you trust God enough to do it. Yeah. And I can I can bear witness to that in your life because I've seen I've seen it happen. I remember when you had to go yeah, through the yeah. competition in Europe, and it seemed impossible, but it happened. You, you know, <laughs> when I finished my national service and I told Abeku that I will be leaving my post, you know, I got opportunity to work to continue mm-hmm. working there as junior achievement. And this is the first time I was going to get mm-hmm. a full time job, being paid some good money working with someone who was already my friend. Mm -hmm. We had the opportunity to have worked together for a long time and we had scaled the project, the the, the work that we were doing. We're reaching more people. We were both succeeding together Mm -hmm. and we had a very good work dynamic. So when I told him that I was going to leave and although he knew that I was pretty serious about what I was doing, but it it took a lot of effort for me to Mm -hmm. want to leave so I think that he probably didn't take it serious at the time. And it makes sense because it's a very, should I say, it looks from the outside a very stupid action to want to take. And I did it anyway because this was a very important thing to me, you know, taking that step to start a business and, you know, commit full time to it. But... Just like two months ago, I called my mother on the phone and I cried because the person that I started a business with, my CTO, mm. had one day just called me and told mm-hmm. me that he will not be able to work with me again. And I cried so much because I had stuck, I had betted my whole existence on this company because literally my next step in life was 
for me to start this business and progress it mm. and i thought at the time that he was the person who was going to help me make that vision possible so when he left <laughs> i thought my life had come to a pause at that time so it hurt me very much but i have come to also realize that i have some serious resilience that keeps me going and so the next day i picked up my phone and i called everybody that i knew and i was able to get a new team and looking back just a month in that span how much work that we have come to do is is unbelievable to me and it speaks to the kind of resilience that i don't know where i got from but for whatever reason i have this resilience that makes me want to go back and fix the errors and become stronger than i was before when i face adversities that are mm. potentially um heartbreaking you know yeah yeah no i think courage requires a lot of that <laughs> i think that's that's you know that courage when you call it stupid but i was like that's it's just the other side of courage right it's um it's a fine fine line but it's you you, you require you're, i think courage just requires sometimes for you to be, be to look blind if not be blind you know because you have to you have to trust everything that you know about a situation everything that you believe to be true or possible and do it in spite of evidence that may exist to the contrary because you can't not do it it's a compulsion you're compelled to do it i think it's exactly that it's a compulsion as you said yeah you know the things i do i usually think i have an option to not to do them but i don't instinctively because i am forced by a will of nature to just do these mm-hmm. things ideas come to me and i yeah. have to execute on it it's just like this podcast one day i was there and then i had this idea that i had to do it and <laughs> i was pushed to do it and i had no option than to just do it and follow the will of the thoughts that is speaking to me and i just took the action to do it anyway and it's very important that maybe we pay attention to the voices inside of us that forces yeah. us to do these things because as we were talking about before intuition is very important and whatever is responsible for your intuition is a part of you that is very mm-hmm. instinctive and and spiritual even yeah and Absolutely. it's very important that we listen to it Absolutely. i think it's our perception of what we value um as our gifts you know most of the time we try to debase what we have um but human beings don't do a good job of valuing the gifts that they have and usually even if we did we don't think that a gift could create a ripple bound effect of the multiples of what could happen you know in the future so we limit ourselves to saying that we are not ready enough but coming to a recognition of knowing that you can start from wherever you are without the resources without the skills but acknowledging that what you have is good enough to start is what is the game changer is what is the perception that would move you to build in the things that you have to even when you think you are not good enough to start <laughs> so i found out about your grandmother elizabeth alo yes mm-hmm. elizabeth alo yes um, can you tell us about your grandmother what were some of your fondest memories of her 
Oh gosh, this may make me cry. So I, both my grandmothers, this is the, one of the most special things about my, my history and my identity. Um, both my grandmothers were named Elizabeth. My, oh. Yeah, my father's mother and my mother's mother were both Elizabeth. <laughs> and so I was named for, for my grandmothers. And, um, you know, for a long time growing up, I hated the name Elizabeth simply because it was difficult to spell. It took me, I was probably the last person in my class who learned to, to spell my name. It just, it had a lot of letters. It has both the letter A and Z. Like, I just felt like it spanned the whole alphabet. And, you know, to my five-year-old self, that was just a whole lot of name, but I've grown into it. And I've grown to love it, particularly as I learned more about my grandmother. So my grandmother, Elizabeth Allo, was my mother's mother. And, um, you know, she was a very um, kind of simple woman, you know, growing up in the time that she did with the many, many limitations that women had at that time. You know, you didn't have room to have ambitions as a woman beyond, you know, owning and working on your farm. And my grandfather was a cocoa, a coffee farmer. My other grandfather was a cocoa farmer. My maternal grandfather was a coffee farmer and a very successful one. He led the cooperative in the in the village where, where my mother grew up. And my mother had all of these children and she was the second of two wives. And so, you know, back in that day, you know, the number of children that you were able to have was really what gave you status within the family, in a, especially in a polygamous family. And definitely that gave you status within the community. So... That was really all that my grandmother became and and probably, I don't know what she aspired to be, but that's what she was, was a mother. And she was very maternal. She loved her children. She raised my mother very well. And I attribute to her a big, a lot of the fact that I was able to have the life that I had, which, you know, my education, I think is, is possible, even though my father was an educator and I don't mean to take credit away from him, but I attribute a lot of my education to the fact that my mother was educated. Um, and my mother was educated because my grandmother insisted that my mother be educated. There was, you know, very little um, um, leverage that she had to get my mother educated back in that time. But she insisted. And um, as a result, my mother not only got her education in Cameroon, but, you know, was one of the first Cameroonians to go come to the U.S. to get her education. She studied agriculture and animal science and, and animal nutrition, got her master's you know, went back and became a, a successful executive in the government system. And, and as such, I was able to have the life that I've had and the education and the access to opportunities. So I draw a very direct line. Um, a lot of that line goes to my grandmother, my, my maternal grandmother, who had a vision for life for her children and probably her grandchildren beyond what she was able to have for herself. And what about your other grandmother? I don't know about her. <laughs> my other grandmother. So a few years ago, I got to interview my dad. I went home. I was living in Ghana at the time, but I went home to Cameroon. And I sat my parents down and I did this thing. And I don't even know where I got the the, um, the idea from, but I, I interviewed my dad. And I just wanted to know his story. And I had to capture it on tape, which I now have uh, two, three hours of, of talking to my father on tape. And, um, you know, to ask about his story and, and about his his mother, his parents. And it was amazing because in two hours I talked to my dad and, you know, he's older now. My dad's memory is failing mm -hmm. in many ways, but he, he's a historian. He remembers so many details about his life. He's, you know, at the point in his life where he'll forget to turn off the stove or turn off the iron. But he remembers every detail of everything that ever happened to him. By the way, I do forget when to turn off the oven or stove too. So it's not just your grandfather. <laughs> 
<laughs> so it's not just an age thing. I do too. So yeah, I should probably give my father more credit than I'm giving him. But one of the things that I remember in, in two, three hours of sitting down and interviewing with him, and he was very stoic and very matter of fact in the way he told his life story from beginning to end. But the one time he got emotional, I said, tell me about grandma. And my father, even at 80, um, just devolved into tears. He became very emotional. And I think we all can relate, right? Our connections to our mothers, more than anything else for most of us in our lives, is, you know, such a special one, for lack of a better word. Um, and so he just, he talked to me about my grandmother, his mother, and he talked to me about, you know, the many sacrifices she made. My grandfather held several positions. He was a nurse with the British government for a while. He was an administrator. He was very smart. He became mayor later in his life of the town where my father was born. And he had this wife and my father calls her his long-suffering wife who supported him the whole time. She wasn't educated. He was. Um, but she not just put up with him, but supported him. And my, my dad talks about the fact that she was insistent that he won't become um, a difficulty to his wife. So she made sure he learned how to cook. He made sure she he learned how, she made sure he learned how to iron. And my dad is still one of the best cooks I know, far better than my mother. Don't let her hear this. Um, <laughs> you know, and he irons his clothes. And you know, when he irons something for you, it's meticulous. I still remember him ironing my graduation gown from university, even though it didn't need to be ironed. But he ironed it. You know, it's one of those things that is just so ingrained in him. The discipline. Um, the sense of, of um, contributing within the household. Um, and I think most a lot of what he was and how my father was as a father was informed by his mother more than his own father in care and compassion and love. Um, and I think all of those things he got from his mother. Um, so she was a pretty amazing woman. And like many women, her generation, like my maternal grandmother, had so few opportunities, had very little choices, had almost no voice in the world, um, but knew their power. They, in a very quiet way, knew how to wield that power. Um, and I think the effects of, of the choices that they made and the power that they wielded, I still experience in my life today in very tangible ways. So I think of them often and I'm very grateful for the lives that they had and the sacrifices that they made. Let's talk about your father then. So that moment where you had the opportunity to go back and ask him all these questions in the two hour interview you had with him, what were some of the things that you found out about him that you previously didn't know? Oh gosh. Um, oh, see, I'm getting emotional now too. So my father, oh, this is so strange. It's so strange how you have reactions to things that, you know, anyway, so my father, um, who just turned 81 last week is, yeah, he is, um, he is a retired college professor and educator and, um, you know, one of the best really. Um, my father was a historian. He's a, a, a historian of, of African history primarily. So, you know, my, my love and fascination from Africa comes very directly from him because growing up, you know, my, and I only found this out recently. <laughs> A few years ago, you know, my sister was talking about the conversations that she has with my dad when she calls home. So they, you know, they talk about who's died, who was born, you know, whose birthday it was and things like family things. And I said, I never, he never talks to me about that. She goes, really? What do you guys talk about? I'm like, oh, he talks about, 
you know, the elections in the U.S., what's happening in Sri Lanka. Like we always have just talked about world affairs. And that was for as long as I remember, that's what my father and I talked about. You had a very different relationship with your very father. Very different. And we didn't realize that till a few years ago. But I think it's because I he, he knew that I was fascinated by it. I love that he was talking to me at that level. And so those are the conversations <laughs> that we had. I mean, I learned from him about Kenneth Kaunda and, you know, Nelson Mandela, and they were contemporaries in school. And we were talking about Jomo Kenyatta and what was happening with the Mau Mau and, you know, what was Kwame Nkrumah saying in Ghana. So that was, that I have a very different um, relationship with my father. But the thing, so I think part of the reason I wanted to have the interview was because we talked about the whole world, he and I practically. We talked about, you know, Cameroon's history and to, in fact, independence, which is, something we both have very strong thoughts about and our national identity and things like that. But I'd never really talked to him a lot about his own life and his own story. So so that was where we started. And I remember the first question I asked him was, what is his, I said, what are your, um, what's your um, earliest memory? And he talked about being born. This was around the Second World War and he was a young boy. Um, and his earliest memories were of the conversations that at the time Cameroon was a, a, a German protectorate, it wasn't quite a colony. Um, or maybe it was a colony, but it was it was German. And the German farmers on the plantations um, were, he remembers hearing, overhearing conversations between them and his father talking about the war. Um, and just talking about his his grandmother was talking to his father about building a bunker so that they had a place to hide if you know bombs came dropping dropping on our heads and i was just really fascinated by that because i thought gosh how did information move a war was happening in europe i mean i know it was a world war but it was mostly happening far far away and yet they were getting information very very quickly about what was happening to the point where they felt it was imminent and they were in imminent danger and they needed to protect themselves so that was uh, really interesting and surprising. And then I learned a number of other things about my father and just how much he had sacrificed of his ambitions, um, of his career potential to become, you know, to remain um, involved in our lives, especially when we started being born and there's five of us. So one of the best, most amazing stories that I learned, like I remember he told me about getting off the plane in Europe and then he, one time when he was traveling between the Cameroon and the U.S. and hearing the scuffle behind him, he turned around and um, it was, um, oh, what's his name? Louis Armstrong was on the plane and he was just coming back oh. from his African tour. <laughs> um, you know, so things like that. He told me he had been asked by, so he went to school with a man called Zoe Kangaki, who used to be the secretary general of the African Union. And he used to help Zoe Kangaki take his notes because, you know, in school, um, and share notes with him and things like that. And apparently this man, many years later, when he got appointed to the African Union as Secretary General, called my father and asked him to be his chief of staff. Uh, but the job would have required that my father go to Addis Ababa. And he wasn't able to do that because one of my siblings had just been born. Maybe it was me, I don't know. Um, so turning that down, you know, so things like that. And he, you know, my father had this amazingly fascinating life. One of the favorite stories that he told me, I'll tell this is the last one was, you know, he remembered very detailed arriving in the U.S., what the person who met him at the airport was wearing. Like, it's amazing that he remembered that, you know, for somebody who, who is his age and whose uh, memory is feeling in some ways. But he talked about when finishing um, his undergrad 
And then he had just, he was applying for admission at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. And he had to drive, he had to go to Washington, D.C. for the interview to meet with the dean. So he took a Greyhound bus, a Greyhound is a public transportation bus in the U.S. He took a Greyhound bus from Chicago to Washington. And the night that he arrived in Washington, he went to the school, he went to Georgetown University. And um, he, he met, he went looking for the dean and he met the dean's secretary who was packing up for the day and ready to go. And he said, I have an appointment with the dean. And she said, oh yes, the dean left a message for you, Love Delango. And said, um, you know, he had left because there was a big event happening in Washington the next day and everybody had left town. The dean said, don't worry about your interview. Just go back and pack your things and be, be prepared to come back to school to start in the spring. Um, and the event that was happening the next day, which is why everybody had gotten out of town, was the March on Washington in which uh, Martin Luther King developed, delivered his his big I Have a Dream speech. So, <laughs> you know, just stories like that, that my father told, just blew my mind. And I just thought, is he making this stuff up? Because everything about his life that he told me was so incredibly fascinating about your uncle. So one of the other things, stories that he told me, I said I was going to tell this last story, but I wanted to tell this one because it relates to how my pathway to living in Ghana. My dad um, loves Ghana and I share that love of Ghana with him. And he um, had, when he was younger, finished high school, um, left Cameroon. He was supposed to go to the U.S., but there was only one scholarship every year that was awarded to a student in Cameroon going to the U.S. And that scholarship had been awarded to somebody even though everybody knew he was the top of this class that year, the whole country. Um, and everybody thought the scholarship should go to him, but it had been awarded. The person who was making the decision about the scholarship, it had been awarded to one of his relatives, something like that. And so my dad, you know, decided to go to Ghana to pursue his education. He was interested in mass communications. And I think he went to Accra Tech or one, some school. Um, so he arrives in Ghana. He traveled by a banana boat, you know, across the road to Nigeria and then by boat into, into Ghana arrived in Ghana, didn't know anybody, and ended up through a series of just coincidences, finding out, you know, finding somebody that he eventually lived with for a couple of years. But one day he was in the park in Accra, and a, a white man came up to him, sat next to him, next to him on the park bench, and they started talking. And through the conversation, the guy, you know, he told the guy that he's from Cameroon, and the guy says, what's your name? He goes, love it, Delango. He was like, you're joking. And the man says, I've been looking for you all over Cameroon. And my father, of course, is just amazed, like, where do, where do you know me from? And this man says, um, there's a scholarship with your name on it. The scholarship committee has been looking for you to award you the scholarship to the U.S. What? <laughs> How crazy is that story, right? Your so, mother had the most sensational life yes. ever. <laughs> so my father, the guy says to him, how soon can you travel to the U.S.? And my father, of course, thinks this is a joke. And at the time, Cameroon was being, um, Cameroon's status was being determined in the U.S. So we weren't quite a country yet. You know, all of our magic between our French, Francophone, colonialist and Anglophone were being dis decided. So he, we didn't have passports. So he had to drive back to, he had to go by road back to Nigeria, get a travel document, travel back to Cameroon, say goodbye to his parents, and then flew out from Cameroon to the U.S. So, so I learned all these amazing things about my dad. And I tell everybody, you know, if you still have the opportunity to interview your parents, because the things you will learn will blow your mind. You know, we often forget that our, our parents are people and full people outside of the role that they play as our parents. Um, but I learned a lot about my dad and also about the things about him that inform who I am and who I've become. Um, and it's, it was just really fascinating. 
In an unlikely turn of events, Viola Lewin, Elizabeth's cousin, joins in our conversation for a brief moment. Enjoy this excited randomness. Hey, hon, how are you? Hello, cousin. Oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. This is so funny. <laughs> All right, I'm listening to Maya because I, Uncle Lovett, I remember the first time I met him, I was a little my kid dad. in in London, and he just had these kind, twinkly eyes, a soft voice, and endless narratives. And my mother was just so excited that her cousin was visiting her. And I always knew of Uncle Lovett and everybody else, Uncle Edwin. But to match the story of what Elizabeth is talking about and why Uncle Lovett is so special, that surprise element is also in his children. So one day, about 10 years ago, when I had left my quote-unquote job, I was looking for ways to be relevant in Africa and in business development. And this company down in the Virgin Islands and asked me, what should I do? And I said, I really do believe that Africa is going to be the next big thing. And so will renewable energy. And they said, no way. Africa is completely unruly. There's not, that's not true. I said, well, let me do the research for you. So I found this website and it had a lot of data and information. And I kept seeing the name of somebody by the name of Aimbe Elango. And I thought, isn't that interesting? I have an uncle with that name. Can't be the same person. I keep on sending messages and this person called Ian Bailango keeps on replying. And eventually I sent him a message saying, are you related to a Dr. Lovett Alango or an Edwin Alango? And why do you have the same name as my family members from the Baffle tribe in Kumba? And less than one minute later, message comes out, who are you? Yeah. Or he said, who are you? I said, um, I, I, I'm just, I just said, I'm a Cameroonian. He said, well, you know entirely too many specific details about me to just be anyone. Why would some English woman, quote unquote, know all of this? Uh-huh. I sent a message back saying, I'm actually only born in England. My mother is from, is the, is Baffle from that same tribe. And it just seems really coincidental. Then a message comes back. Do you know anybody by the name of Andrew Jingwa? I went to boarding school with a guy with that name. It's the only English person from our tribe I know. I said, yeah, he's my brother. Then he went, hold on a second. Is this Auntie Jacko's daughter? I said, yeah, who are you? I'm, <laughs> Why don't I know you? And of course, when he said oh, this, right. like, I would have stopped you on the street if I'd seen this human being. I took the first flight I could and me and Amber have been tight. And of course, uh, my young and everybody else. But the relation, our, our blood relationship is actually quite close. <laughs> yeah, I was just telling Isaac that. And Isaac, so Amber is my older brother. And and Viola calls me Mayang because that's my middle name. So <laughs> I don't want you to get lost in the conversation because now we're going deep. We're going deep into Bafo land. <laughs> Bafo is the tribe that we're from, yes. It was. I've been talking about you, Viola, and talking about the fact that you have a British accent, but you're a 100% Buffalo girl. Completely. <laughs> and so people are shocked if I say something or make a cultural reference that is really specific, like, hey, white girl. No, not white no. girl. <laughs> you are mistaken. Don't be fooled. And um, it was very easy to slip back into the relationships, especially with Elizabeth, both mm-hmm. personally and professionally. I, I think she's one of the greatest 
women oh. for our continent that I know. Thank I'm you. constantly just down. Yeah, whenever I see her achievements and she goes from from level to level and is so loved and respected. And I think about the fact that her impact on young girls actually has a genetic expression mm. in the in the centuries that will come literally that those girls who got shifted just a few inches away from uh, non-entity mediocrity or lack of opportunity will instead go on to give birth to children that have the same elevated opportunities that elizabeth mm. gave in the same way that my grandmothers gave me i was just talking about my grandmother yeah yeah no i i hope so okay next thing i want to ask is about your love for african history and i know that because of your relationship with your father you're very much interested in history and african culture you know on the flip side however you didn't have a lot of your education in africa but i want to ask your thoughts on how we can reinstate that kind of african pride and africanness that is the epitome of black pride and how that will resonate with young people and allow them to see their relevance to taking up the spaces of leadership which is very critical for the growth of the continent and the empathy that they can have for their culture and their history would eventually influence how they um, pursue and they perceive leadership. So I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. So, I mean, first of all, I would push back a little bit on the I, the notion that I haven't had much of my education in Africa, because um, I think my foundational Africa um, education was in Africa. The things that informed me the most, <clears throat> you know, I went to primary school in, in Douala, Cameroon. I went to an all-girls secondary school on the Cameroonian border with Nigeria. That was some of my first exposure to, you know, other Africans coming in from Nigeria. Our schools had a very large Nigerian population. Um, but even growing up in the city in Douala, um, you know, we had we had a very international exposure. And we had, my parents just naturally, I have loud children downstairs. My parents just naturally had friends from all over the world. So, you know, I was, I very much grew up in that space of, of uh, multiple cultures. About my, my conversations with my father and how much that informed my education about Africa. I was just steeped in the narratives and the stories that he was telling, stories about Africa, stories about Africans. And he just always saw and continues to see Africa in a very different way. And so that's how I've always seen Africa. I've seen us as a place of possibility, of opportunity, of goodness, you know, because the Africa I know is not just the stories that have been fed back to us from a post-colonial narrative. That's not where our stories and our history started. Our stories and our history started well before that, you know, whether it's with our architect architecture or with our art or with our um, culture, society, all of those things, you know, I can go back to <clears throat> Shaka Zulu times and make references to that. I can go back to, you know, um, talking about Ashanti architecture. I can go back to talking about the cliffs of Bajagara and, you know, all of these different things that people aren't taught now. Um, and when I look at what is missing for us, I think it's that context mostly because the story that has been told and that most people know is from the 1960s to now. And that is, that's the least um, appealing, least um, flattering uh, aspect of our culture. It's our culture. We still embrace it, but you know, the, the, the richness of Africa and Africans is before that. And not to say that we should live in the past, but I think we really need to know that in order for it to inform our future. 
in one of the best ways that I can articulate this, there's a, a TED talk that was done by a Nigerian woman just a couple of years ago that I love. And in it, she was making this case for um, why our education continues to still be so alien that it's you know become a roadblock in many ways than a path or than a bridge. And she talks about something as basic as the fact that the first thing that kids learn in school, that African kids learn in school, you know, when they're learning about themselves and their, their ABCs is A, A is for apple. And she said, you know, we're still using these references that are so foreign. Most kids have never seen an apple and most will never see an apple in their lifetimes. Um, and yet we're using this as the first thing that they learn about their society, about the environment, about themselves. You know, so some, just changing things as basic as that. Why don't we start with the A's for Africa? And I know Africa is an abstract concept, but why not, you know, and then make it real for students. Um, I think those are the kinds of things that we need to be changing. It's not the big changes are not the things, you know, government policies with all the best effort and intentions focus on big, big macro swifting, uh, swift narratives um, that, that cover so many things. But I think where people are looking for real change is in the basic things. And I, you know, I've had so many conversations for many years living in Ghana, I take Ubers back and forth to work. And some of my best conversations happen with my Uber drivers. And even just talking about how people, you know, make decisions when we're choosing leaders. And they're like, well, the economy, the GDP is this and that and the other. And I said, but you don't eat GDP for dinner. You know, you eat your salary. And that's what you should be basing on is, you know, what what the tax um, code, how that affected your take home at the end of the day. You should be making your decision based on whether the road to your house is paved, you know, and what an unpaved road does to you and to the chassis of your car and to, you know, the longevity, you know, things, very, very basic things, whether you're able to go get a passport or an identity card, how long you stand in line, is the process easy or is it impossibly cumbersome? I just think as Africans, we need to go back to basics. And I also think we need to learn to appreciate who we are and where we come from. Um, our history of royalty, of civilizations that that predated even Western in Eastern civilizations and that informed those civilizations. Those are the things that we need to know about ourselves in order to have a, a good sense of ourselves. We need to be our own best ambassadors. And one of the things that I make very clear in my life, you know, is especially when I'm sitting with Africans in the diaspora, if they start talking smack about Africa, I'm not a part of it. I'm out. I'm either going to leave the conversation or if they're in my house, I'm kicking them out. I just don't allow it. And it's not to say that I'm not critical of Africa, I am, um, but we need to be critical from an appreciative place rather than from uh, a dismissive, condemnative place. So that's that's what I learned, that's what I know, that's what I try to live by when it comes to my relationship with the continent. You couldn't come to this podcast without having a conversation with me about girls' education and girls in general because I know how you are passionate about it. So I guess you've been waiting for this opportunity. To any girl or woman who is listening to you now, what do you have to say to them? Oh, it, I mean, things that I say to my daughters and as a mother of daughters, you know, I approach girls in the same way I approach my daughters is, you know, don't be afraid of who you are. Um, girls like boys are born with the same opportunities, the same intellect, the same everything and everything else that happens to set girls up for less achievement and less success is, is societal. It's it's um, informed rather than innate. Um, so I just I tell girls, you have to believe in who you are. Um, you have to embrace 
choices when you have them and use the choices you have to embrace your power one of the first things i ask girls is what's your relationship with power and it sounds like such an abstract concept but women learn very young we're taught very young to that power is a bad thing um, and power is uh, an element of everything that we do in our lives and everything every decision that we make every day so voices their choices the opportunities you know, I tell girls, you have all of these in very similar ways as boys do, as males do. Um, and you need to learn to embrace them and to use them to your advantage. Even though it feels we're, you know, we're taught to be self-sacrificial. We shouldn't always be. The world doesn't benefit from us sacrificing ourselves. The world benefits from us being present, showing up, making decisions, sharing our intellect and our ideas. Um, and we can't become powerful women if we don't learn how to wield power as girls. So those are the things that motivate me in terms of building girls and women who 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 come to play, <laughs> who come to make change. Okay, so that is it. Thank you very much, Elizabeth Bindley, for coming to this podcast. It's been a great honor to have you. And you have, um, <laughs> you and I have some of the best conversations ever. And I think that clearly this has thank been one you. of those very interesting conversations. So thank you very much. For being I here. did. I love talking to you, as you know, and I'm so honored that you asked me to be on this podcast. So thank you. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. We hope to see you next week. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, send a message at Change Africa Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or LinkedIn. See you next week.